Jaya. I will be reading Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning and happy Easter to all of you. Uh, we want to welcome you here. And uh, as we get into the Word of God, Mark chapter 16, you can turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 16, where we'll be examining the Easter story from here. Uh, but let me give you uh, and, and myself the opportunity just to take a moment to present yourself before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. And this moment, as you're here today, maybe you, um, maybe you have a lot going on in your life. Maybe you are coming to this place filled with anxiety or fear of something that's happening in your heart, and it's hard for you to come to an Easter to celebrate. So I pray that the Lord would give you his special peace and comfort in this time. Maybe you're here and you're just filled with distractions about things that you have going on in your life or what's even happening after Easter today. May the Lord fill you with a sense of peace in your anxiety. Wherever you are, whatever's going on in your heart today, may the Lord give you the ability to hold on to his word and with your full attention, with your body, soul, and your mind, so that you might encounter the living God in the pages of Scripture. And so, Lord, speak to us. Use me as your mouthpiece today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I'm 41 years old. I am educated. I'm relatively well-read. Um, I'm mentally healthy, I think. Um, you're not supposed to laugh. And I've based my entire adult life on a belief that an ancient, uneducated Jewish peasant named Jesus rose from the dead. And I know that for some of you, I know how that sounds. And I know for many people that I meet out in the community, I know how that sounds. 
And in a crowd as large as we are, as we fill this space, we come from all different backgrounds when it comes to a thought, a belief, a worldview, a feeling about Jesus and who he is. Of course, there's many here that are here like me, and you believe that Easter is more than bunnies and uh, Easter egg hunts and overpriced brunches. You believe Easter is about the greatest news that this world has ever heard, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so to you, I say, happy Easter. He is risen. Amen. But there's also others that are here, and you're sort of standing outside of that circle of that mantra that we just said, he is risen indeed. And you're kind of peering into that. Some of you are peering in in curiosity. Because you say, I want to know more about this Jesus fellow. I wonder if it's he that I've been looking for that I'm missing in my life. And there's some of you that are here and you're peering into that circle with skepticism. You say, I don't know. You know, Jesus is is kind of a, a myth. He's a leftover legend from a bygone religious era. You know, he had a place in time, uh, but it's a little more than wishful thinking to make your life more livable. Or maybe you think, Jesus, you know, he existed. He was a good teacher. He was a political revolutionary. He was a guru. He was here to make the world a better place, but that's about it. And some of us stand right on the line of that circle. You have one foot in and one foot out. And when I said he is risen and you said it is, he is risen indeed, maybe you're sort of saying it under your breath because you're not sure if you're honest with yourself. You, maybe you haven't thought about it for a while and maybe you're just kind of uninterested. You think about it, maybe every Easter or every Christmas or you know, when your mom convinces you to come on Mother's Day, But other than that, it sort of doesn't affect much of your life. And now, wherever you are in any of those places, whether you're peering in or you're kind of inside or you're somewhere in the middle, I just want to tell you, we want to welcome you here. I'm so glad you're here. You are our guest here today. I've been in all of those places. I know what those places are like. And I want you to know that I feel honored that you would come and spend the next, you know, basically the hour of your a morning spent here with me and with us. So thank you. I'm not going to waste your time uh, here this morning. I'm going to make an educated guess that whatever you think about Jesus ultimately depends on what you think about the resurrection of Jesus, that first Easter. What you think about Jesus depends on what you think happened on that first Easter. Because if Jesus didn't actually bodily rise from the dead, then let's be honest, what you think about Jesus isn't a whole lot different than me asking you, what do you think about Confucius or Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or any other historical figure that ever lived and is dead and gone? But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, if everything he said about himself is true, then what you think about Jesus And how you respond to that question is the most important thing and the most important decision you can make in your entire life. Yeah? Because anyone who made the kind of claims that Jesus claimed, anybody who actually said, I am going to rise from the dead, and then actually does it, well, what they said holds a high value, isn't it? 
It kind of defines truth. It means that we can trust him about everything he said. It validates when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus claimed to be God in flesh and Lord and Savior. Everything Jesus taught about heaven and hell and sin and salvation and how to live and why we exist, I mean, everything suddenly matters. And so what you believe about Easter, back in the first century in Palestine, has the ability to transform your life. It's the most essential question you will ever ask. So you following the logic with that? It makes sense? So how is it that I came to believe in Easter and the resurrection of Jesus? How is it that I came to base my entire life around that reality? Well, that is a, a longer story than, than what we have to tell right here. I would invite you to take me out to lunch or <laughs> dinner at your favorite expensive restaurant, no, wherever, or coffee, and let's, sh- let's sh- swap stories, all right? I want to hear yours. You can hear mine. I'm serious about that. Take me up on that. I'll, I'll even pay some of the time, okay? So come, come out. Let's do that. But suffice to say for today that at least two sort of things uh, converged in my life around the same time. The first is that I came to believe the compelling evidence of the resurrection that I discovered that it wasn't myths and legends, but that the Bible and history are actually telling the truth about him. But it wasn't just evidence. It wasn't just facts. And we know this to be true. And in fact, uh, you know, research has, has backed this up, that, that we don't make decisions based on just on left brain logic. You realize that we're not just brains on sticks. We are spiritual beings. We are we have souls, we have feelings, mind, emotion, and will, we also need what we might call a moment of clarity. We need compelling evidence, but we also need moment of clarity. When everything kind of hits us, everything sort of smacks us in the face and clicks with us, and we associate moments of clarity with, um, with our heart, right? Make a decision in the heart. Or maybe, if you don't like that language, you make it with your gut. It's a convictional level. It's something from deeper inside of you that makes that decision. It's not a cognitive moment as much as it is an effective moment or a moment of deep conviction. I'll give you an example. Like like the moment that I realized I wanted to marry my wife, Shannon. You can all say, aww. Yeah. Now, when I decided I want to marry Shannon, I, this is what I didn't do. I didn't make a list of all the positive attributes of Shannon and all the negative attributes of Shannon and then use some kind of mathematical equation to decide that I wanted to marry her. I didn't do that. It's not particularly romantic either, by the way. Um, not that it's a bad thing. It's just that's not how I did it. I had plenty of logical reasons, certainly, but that's not how I did it. Here's kind of how it happened. I, I went and visited her one day when we were dating um, at a, a camp that she was serving in, an inner city youth camp outside of Coatesville, Pennsylvania, uh, called Camp at Old Mill. And um, as I drove up into the parking lot, I got out, and I'm walking up to this camp, and there's just kids everywhere running around, and there's camp counselors running around chasing after the kids. And somewhere I kind of spotted Shannon, and I, I made eyes with her, and she smiled at me. And it was as if a beam of light came down. 
and time started to move slowly. And just something in me just said, I got to marry this woman. That's how it happened. It happened because of moment of clarity. You with me? So that's how it happens in our life. And now if you have the, had the privilege of choosing a spouse, if you've had the privilege of choosing a career or making a big move in your life, you know that those things happen. Don't, they don't just happen because of left brain logic. They don't just happen because you think you got all the facts. They happen because somewhere in your gut, there is a conviction to say, yes, this is what I'm going to do. And it gives you the ability, the courage, the fortitude to move forward with a sense of peace, right? You follow me? So as a, as a Christ follower, yes, I had compelling evidence, but I also had a moment of clarity in my life that hit me where everything I believed came crashing into my life, where I had an encounter with Jesus in a spiritual sense that awakened me, and I've never been the same since. And that's my story, and I'd love to hear yours sometime. And all of this takes us to Mark 16 and the story of the resurrection. Because it's here that we will encounter both some compelling evidence that we want to take a look at, and it will also, we will also see an invitation to a moment of clarity that the eyewitnesses had. All right, so that kind of gives us our outline for the next few minutes together. Let's first see the compelling evidence of the resurrection here in, in Mark's story. Now, many people believe that the Gospels are mere myths and legends that are written centuries later by a Roman Empire church. That's what a lot of people think. So we can't really take it in consideration because they were written many centuries later. Of course, the problem with that is Mark's uh, evidence, Mark's gospel, uh, really comes and defies that notion. Let me tell you some of the reasons. Rigorous scholarship has found that Mark's gospel was not written centuries later, but rather it was written within three decades of Christ's life, within three decades, somewhere between 66 and 68 AD. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because Christianity was not some big, powerful force in the Roman Empire, which could have been subject to corruption. It was a small, tiny minority of persecuted people with no power who are completely marginalized as a minority. That makes a big difference. But we also know that these aren't legends written centuries later because many of the historical events of Easter have been verified both inside and outside the Bible, both by Christians and non-Christian historians. Early century, first century and second century people like Josephus and Tacitus and Lucius, for example, so today, if you kind of polled Bible experts and historians, both Christian and non-Christian, they would all agree on at least five facts. And let me give them to you. One, that there lived a first century Jewish rabbi named Jesus who claimed to be the son of God and performed many miracles. Two, that Jesus suffered a Roman execution by crucifixion under the decree of Pontius Pilate. Number three, that Jesus died and was placed in a tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Number four, after three days, the tomb was empty. There was no body to be found. And number five, that hundreds of eyewitnesses 
claimed to see the risen Jesus, and none of them recanted their story, even upon threat of death. This is the sort of facts of history that everyone uh, that has some credibility believes in. So, because Mark's gospel was written within three decades of the Easter events, there's also some other compelling evidence. This also means that there was plenty of eyewitnesses. Plenty of eyewitnesses still living at the time that this was written who could verify Mark's account. Say, well, what eyewitnesses? Well, there's lots of them, but Mark tells us about at least three. Do you remember as we heard a read um, uh, by Ashani, Mark chapter 16, we heard the names of Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, and we actually find these names three times repeated in about 12 verses, repeated over and over again. You say, why, why would, did they repeat them, these names, so many times? Well, this repetition is very purposeful. Richard Bauckham, he's a British scholar, he's an expert in ancient historiography, and he says that this account, this repetition of these names has all the marks of how historians wrote history. Living eyewitnesses were critical, just like living eyewitnesses are critical today in the court of law. You need some eyewitnesses to help the case. They were just as critical, if not more, back then. And the repeated names of these women here are what he calls source citations. That is ancient footnotes, so to speak. It's a way for the author to say, hey, you want to know if this is true? Go talk to these women. You can hear what they had to say. You can talk to them about what they saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. This is not how legends are written, he says. This is history. But there's also something else significant about these eyewitnesses that lends credibility to Mark's gospel. And it's not just that they were eyewitnesses, but it was that they were women eyewitnesses. And you say, that's right, because you can believe women more than men. <laughs> okay, that might be true. That's a matter of opinion. But that's actually not why. Listen, Celsus, he was a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century AD. He was very antagonistic to Christianity. He wrote many pieces against Christianity. But what he considered, and many people considered, the most compelling case for why Christianity is not true went something like this. And you're not going to like this. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women, and we all know that women are hysterical. <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger. I didn't say that. Kelsus said that. Of course, you ought to be offended. You ought to be outraged by something like that. You say, how in the world could anyone say that? You need to know that this is second century. At the time, many people agreed because women were marginalized. Their voices were not considered equal to men at this time. So they would have believed this. Do you see what this means? If Mark and the Christians were making up these stories, friends, to get their movement off the ground, they would have never written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses of an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus. They would have never put that in there. And so why are they in there? Friends, the only possible reason for the presence of these witnesses in, this, in these eyewitness accounts is that they really were present and they reported exactly what they saw. This is history, not legend. You say, okay, okay, Nate. 
So maybe Mark was written as an eyewitness account. Maybe, I'll give you that. Maybe it wasn't centuries later, but still. I mean, how can we trust that these women really saw an empty tomb? How can we trust that there's really a resurrected Jesus? I mean, after all, aren't ancient people, you know, aren't they superstitious people? Aren't they gullible? I mean, don't they believe in magic? We all saw, you know, Monty Python, Search of the Holy Grail, you know, isn't that how people are back then? You know, we don't believe in miracles anymore now. And so it would have been easy for them to believe in a resurrected Jesus. Ah, not so fast. Again, Mark contradicts that notion. Here's what we find out, that the resurrection was just as unexpected, just as hard to believe for first century Jewish people as it would be if it happened today. Now, I say this every Easter because it's just so important that all throughout Mark's gospel, what we see is that Jesus predicted his death, his resurrection on the third day. Over and over again, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, not just his disciples heard this, but even his, uh, the, the antagonists heard about this, even his skeptics heard about this. Everyone knew this is what Jesus was claiming. Do you find it fascinating and curious that on that third day, that Easter morning, that none of these disciples showed up at the tomb? I mean, you would have thought at some point somebody would have been like, wait a second, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days. You know, maybe we better send somebody to the tomb just in case. That's not what happens. Where are they? They're locked in an upper room somewhere, afraid of the Romans, afraid of the Jewish leadership. They didn't go. You say, well, the women went. Yeah, but they didn't go for a resurrection. Look at the account, chapter 16, verse 1. They bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Verse 3, they were asking each other as they went, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb so he can take these spices and anoint the body of Jesus? They were not coming for Easter brunch with a risen Savior. Friends, they were coming to memorialize a dead Jesus. Here's the point. No one believed in an actual, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus until it happened. No one believed it. Well, why? Well, because scholar N.T. Wright, he explains it like this in his book, Resurrection, the Resurrection of the Son of God. He said, Jewish people in the first century did not believe that, A, a man could be uh, God, which was blasphemy, it earned a death penalty, and they would have never believed that in the middle of history that you could actually bodily be resurrected from the dead. They didn't believe those two things, and yet somehow... These women, along with the disciples and thousands of other Jews, suddenly began believing both those things were true, that Jesus was God in flesh, Son of God, and that he was resurrected bodily from the dead. How in the world does that happen? Well, it happens because lots of people actually saw him resurrected with their own eyes. They heard him teach. They put their hands in his, his, their fingers in his hands, and in his side, they believed the evidence. They were compelled in a moment of clarity and deep conviction. And, the, and Christianity exploded in the first century. It exploded. Many of these witnesses were killed because of their testimony. Many of them went to their very death, never recanting what they saw, what they believed. 
There's no other explanation for it. N.T. Wright comes to this conclusion. No other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb became empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and their worldviews were changed and transformed. See, friends, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, you can understand why it would transform lives the way it did. You can understand why it would take these cowardly disciples hiding in an upper room somewhere and turn these men and women into bold, courageous, loving people of God that transformed and turned the world upside down. You can understand it because the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes your past because Jesus said he's the only one to have, that has the ability to forgive sins. The only one that can wipe your past clean before God, which means, friends, that you're no longer identified by your past failures. You're no longer identified by what your ex-husband or ex-wife thinks. You no longer have to, have to live under the voice of you know, a, a, a mother or a father who are very critical in your life or that boss and what they think of you, but rather Jesus sees you as loved and accepted and completely forgiven. That changes your life. That gives you a freedom. The resurrection of Jesus changes your future. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says he is the one because of his resurrection that can secure our resurrection so that death does not get the final word. That the end of our life is not just the darkness of defeat, but it's shining victory in life with God forever and ever. Jesus' resurrection changes our present. Why? Because Jesus promises to give us life and life to the full. Not just some distant day by and by in the clouds one day, but now. He promises to change us now. To heal our wounds if we let him. To free us from addictions that we battle. To bring us the kind of meaning and purpose and dignity that our soul longs for deeply inside of us. He promises to give us that. He gives us a hope, friends, that no amount of suffering that this world can throw at you can ever take away from you. Jesus says, take heed, I have overcome the world. It'll change your life. And all of this is compelling evidence. All of this and so much more can bring us to the edge of belief, but it's never enough. It's not enough. Even for these women, it wasn't enough. Because every one of us has to have our own moment of clarity. We all do. I want to take us to the end of Mark 16 in verse 8. So these women, they visit this empty tomb. They're told of a resurrected Jesus by an angel and that Jesus is calling them to meet him in Galilee. It says all of this, and the very next verse is very surprising. Look at verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Do you find that kind of an interesting way to end verse 8? And if you actually look in your copy of the Bible, you're going to see a little footnote there in the margins that say that the earliest manuscripts 
that, that, uh, that we've discovered over the last 200 years don't have verses 9 to 20. And what that means is that Mark 8 is very, very likely to be the last verse in Mark's gospel. That's really interesting, isn't it, to end like that? You say, well, why in the world would somebody have added, like as kind of like a postscript, verses 9 to 20? Why would somebody have added that later? Well, I think here's the reason. You ever, you ever watch a movie and it comes to the end and you're like, what? What was that? What kind of ending is that? I, I sat through two hours of this movie to get an ending like that and you're angry and agitated as, <laughs> as uh, the credits scroll. I think that's somewhat what's going on here. I think there are people that came to end of verse 8 and were like, wait a second, you, you can't end like that. You're going to end it that they fled the tomb, they didn't say anything to anybody, and they were afraid? What kind of ending is that? And so I think there's some well-meaning people, probably 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, who took the original and said, you know what, let's, let's add in what we have from the other Gospels and kind of tidy it up from history, put a nice little bow on it, and talk about some other things that happened. That's probably what happened. So why is it that Mark ended his gospel on verse 8? I think he did it very intentionally. I think Mark wanted us to place ourselves into the shoes of these women and experience what they experienced that morning. These women were not superheroes. These women were ordinary people like you and me, These are women who are struggling with grief. These are people that are struggling with confusion and disorientation. These are people struggling to believe. They have their doubts and and their fears. They are wondering, what is this going to mean for our life? They're left unsure. What am I going to do? What ought I to do? And we're left kind of on the edge with them. Are they going to go and tell the other disciples, as the angel said? Are they going to go and meet Jesus? Are they going to have their moment of clarity, or are they going to just kind of go on with the rest of their life and assume that this never happened? What are they going to do? It takes us right to the edge of that moment of clarity so that you and I would ask the question in our life, what are we going to do with the evidence? What are we going to do with an empty tomb? What are we going to do with the accounts of the history of Jesus and what he did and how history changed? I can give you a bunch of facts, and there's a whole lot more that we could give of compelling evidence, but at the end of the day, there's a place where you need to have your own moment of clarity. And this is where Mark is taking us. I love how author Ben Witherington put it. I would suggest that Mark is telling us that the empty tomb and the, and the witnesses are necessary, but by themselves are insufficient to create faith. A real encounter with the divine is required. I think that's it. Friend, you might be here today and you have an ache in your soul and you believe there's got to be something more to this life. It's got to be something more than trying to climb the ladder of my company, than try to get the really good grades in school, to get into a great college and get a great career and have that dream life. There's got to be more than trying to make my mark in the world. There's got to be more than $7 lattes at Brouhaha. There's got to be more than a good steak and a good glass of wine or a good trip to Europe or whatever you consider is the good life. There's got to be more. 
And Jesus is calling you, just as he called these women at the empty tomb. Jesus wants you to have an encounter with him, a true heart-to-heart with Jesus, that moment of clarity with the living Savior where everything clicks, everything comes together. But you got to go out and go, and go for it. Go get it. He wants to meet you there. He wants to convince you that he gave his life for you. He wants to convince you that he loves you. And the greatest demonstration of his love is that God gave Jesus Christ, his son, to be the savior for my sin that separates me from God forever. That he was crucified, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, that he defeated death and he defeated sin so that we can be with him forever and ever. He wants to convince you of that. Now, when I had my moment of clarity, and like many of you, when that moment happened, there's at least three things that accompany that moment. Repent, repentance, belief, and following. Repentance, belief, and following. Now, that word repent is kind of a, a word that we, we, we really don't like. We sort of like get uncomfortable with the word repent, but it's actually a beautiful word when you think about it. The word just means to change your direction, to change your mind and your heart about reality. It's to begin to rethink your way of life around the reality of Jesus as Lord. That's what it means, to repent, to rethink everything. Secondly, to believe, to believe that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher or a good leader, but that he truly is your Savior and the Lord. He is God in flesh. To learn to trust and lean your weight into his life. To not lean on your good works or trying to be a good person, but lean on to the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection for you. That's belief. And then third is follow. A moment of clarity means that that you're not just assenting to some intellectual facts about Jesus and then going on and living the rest of your life however you want to live it, but that it means that you're beginning to reorient the direction of your life towards following who Jesus is and what he says about the good life, about living according to the kingdom of Jesus, how to bring human flourishing into this world, how to love according to the kingdom values of this world how to face trials and rejection and suffering and everything else that Jesus says. Repent, believe, and follow. This is what it looks like on that journey of a moment of clarity. He's calling you to meet him out where he is. And that might be for you. It might be in this moment right now. It might be here. You, maybe you thought about whether you would come to a church today. Maybe it was a last-minute decision. Maybe you're not even sure why you're here. You, some friend brought you whatever, but maybe now you're sensing the tug of the Spirit drawing you in deeper. I want to give you the opportunity to make a moment of clarity for yourself. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. This is sort of our own come to Jesus. Whatever might be going on in your own soul, in your own heart, And maybe right now you feel, you sense that tug in your heart. You've had some compelling 
reasons to believe. But more than anything, you sense that it's, it's true. And he's calling you that in this moment to come to belief. And maybe you could say something this simple to him, not to me, but to God. And this isn't a magic formula. It's just words from your heart to say something like this. God, I believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Son of God and Savior. That he died on the cross for my sins. He resurrected from the grave on that third day. He defeated the power of hell and sin to reunite me with God forever. I believe that. Come into my life. I have a little bit of faith, but give me more faith to believe. And help me to follow you with my life. I want you to know today that if you pray that prayer from your heart, you believe that. You're quite literally breathing eternally. There's nothing in the world that could ever take that away from you. The Bible says anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. That is you today. Lord, I pray for all of us that are here today hearing this message that it would compel us to take that next step forward in following you with our whole life, that we would entrust more of our life to you, because after all, if we follow a risen Savior, we'll end up just like him. Thank you, Lord, for this Easter celebration. In Jesus' name, amen. Now listen, look up here. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, if you came to that moment of clarity, I want you to do a couple things. One, I would t- want you to take that connection card, fill that out, and on the back, you're going to see something that says, my next step is today, uh, and then it says, first time faith decision. Check that box. Put it in, that, in those offering boxes. So we want to follow up with you. We want to help you to learn what it means to follow Jesus with your life, okay? So do that. Second thing I want you to do, I want you to go out to the guest center, and we have a free book for you called Why Easter? It'll give you more compelling evidence. It'll explain this a little bit more so you can learn more about the decision that you just made. Here's the third thing I want you to do. I want you to go out to the guest center and sign up for Alpha. Or you can do it right now. You can scan it right here. Alpha's amazing uh, six-week class. It's built on dialogue and uh, conversation over dinner. It'll help you explore the things of faith, ask your questions that you have, and learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. So you can sign up with that for Alpha right on the screen. It starts Sunday, next Sunday, at 5 o'clock, right here at the church, and it's six weeks long. We hope you come out to that. You can also stop by the guest center to sign up for that as well. Now, if you didn't pray that prayer, but you're kind of curious about it. So, you know, you gave me some things to think about. I hadn't thought about those before. And you know what? Maybe I do want to learn more about what this means to follow Jesus. That's great. Here's what I want you to do. You owe it to yourself to do two things. One, go out to the the guest center, pick up the free book. It's free. Pick up the free book. And secondly, sign up for Alpha. Why? Because you get to ask your questions there. You get to talk about it, all your curious things you've always wondered and maybe you've never talked about. So go sign up for it. Now, listen. 
If you're here today and you're still really skeptical, you say, I, you know what, you really preach your heart out there, buddy, but I'm not buying it. I, I still got lots of questions. I'm not buying it. No problem. Here's what I want you to do. Go get your free book. out. It's free. Go get your free book. Secondly, sign up for Alpha and bring all your skepticism. Bring your questions. Bring your concerns. Bring your what-ifs. Bring it there and have this dialogue because that's how you sharpen each other. And you, maybe you learn something too. So do that, okay? Is that fair? That's what I want you to do.